Last week, I introduced the Bible Project videos. We used it on Zechariah, and uh, I'd like to use Zephaniah's this week as well, just to keep that in front of you and just say, this is a really good resource. So we're going to play that clip if the guys are ready. If they're not, I'm going to chatter. This summer and going through the minor problems. Along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in whoop, whoop. Thank you. <laughs> this is why we use them every Sunday. No. <laughs> It worked during the uh, offertory. <laughs> there we go. Zephaniah. Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshiping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. 
And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you, and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings his justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. So in walking through the Minor Prophets this summer, um, there are several things that we've noted. When we talk about repetition in Scripture, where a, a phrase is stated and then sometimes it's developed with even more intensity using different words, that's a form of poetry for back then. It's not this meter and rhyme that we're used to, but it was a, a writing style. And so often we get... You know, why do they keep repeating themselves? Well, it's, it's a writing device to show the intensity of what they're about. And as we looked at this, it, it stood out to me that um, the idea of justice and, and love of God are not opposites on a scale, but rather work together. And at times, we tend to view, well, if God's just, how is that going to be able to ex be expressed in love? Well, he does it. But is justice is love. And so there are facets of that that in our culture in particular, we don't really want to deal with because in some ways, any form of discipline or punishment often gets viewed as a form of hatred rather than being an expression of love. And one of the things that these Old Testament prophets draw us to is that Really, the expression of love is a punishment that moves us into purification. So it's complicated, but it's something that goes very counter to what we're used to living. 
and practicing within our culture. Uh, the other thing that stands out to me as we've walked through these books is that God is declares authority over the nations, and he hasn't relinquished that. The creator of all things, who put everything in place and, and has everything with such intricacy, even within the systems of our body or the systems of ecology, whatever you want to know, there, there are many, many things that work together. You know, even in our own bodies, there's over 20 different systems that you look at that have to work and function for us to, to even live, and yet it, it goes about in incredible detail, and you know, the, the chemistry of such things amazes me. But that said, the God who's orchestrated all of that is not yielding his right to say, this is what needs to take place. And so he always retains that authority over all things. It's not like we get to say, well, you know, that part I like, this part, it's unimportant to me, or I don't like it, and so this is the way I'm going to live, and you do your thing, I'll do mine. He never relinquishes that. And so where it comes to play is like, even in the discussion with our country, there are times when, when um, people say, well, you can argue that it was founded on godly principle, and others say, no, it wasn't founded on godly principle. That's a moot point, because God still claims authority over this country, and he claims authority over every other country. And so there are times when you can walk in the fullness of what he's decreed as being healthy, and it, it bears fruit. But there are also times where as a people group, you can walk into ways that are destructive, and it bears a fruit as well. And so it's very important that we retain this understanding. He speaks truth. And so we, we seek to glean that truth from him. That becomes a passion of our lives. Zechariah, or Zephaniah, <laughs> I knew I was going to confuse these two. Zephaniah, it, it amazes me, he really spoke during the reign of a godly king, but the culture around him is falling apart. And, and one king can't hold the country together. That's just a reality. But even in that, Zephaniah is making these truth statements and saying, this is what is. This is what's coming. This is how things are. And it's really essential that you know, when we're looking around us and and we have numerous friends who say, I don't, I don't believe any of that stuff. It really doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. I'm going to keep speaking it because it's truth. And, and I need to keep declaring what's right. And that's one of the things I've pulled out of these books. You know, these guys were declaring, even though there are times when others are just going, we don't like this. So that said, I want to walk through just a little bit of this book. Um, this, in Israel's history, if you were to read through Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, you, you read that the, there was a conquering of the nation, and of Judah in particular, after it had split, the smaller group that had Jerusalem, there was a conquering and people were hauled off into Babylon and uh, there, there was called the exile. In other words, they, they were taken from their country. They, they were no longer allowed in their homeland. That went for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied it to the year. And so that said, 
Then there was also the prophecies that they would be brought back. This is pre-exile, okay? So he's making this declaration, trouble's coming, but also in this book is this awareness that even though trouble for the current, trouble for the future worldwide, but also a restoration and a fulfillment. Astounding in this is that God's declaring, I'm going to punish, I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm also going at the end of the day to gather to myself those that will come. And so there is always the expression of love coming out in these books, even though there's a horrific picture painted for the near future. Powerful understanding to get a hold of and just cling to. Um, Let's go into this first chapter a bit. He says, I'm going to utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. So that's the big picture, that there is coming a day when things are drastically changed. Then he focuses his attention on Jerusalem and Judah, and he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he says, even though this has been called the city of God, even though this is, these people see themselves as the people of God because they've been unwilling to walk within my paths, he says, there is a judgment time coming. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decrees take effect, the city passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, they had all been crying out in this nation for the day of the Lord. Let us see the day of the Lord. And the idea is we want to see God reign on the earth and work through us in a powerful way. And the prophets keep coming back and saying, the day of the Lord for you is darkness. The day of the Lord is, is, is going to be applied in this situation is not a healthy thing for you. And so he comes across and he says, God, there is a day coming when God's anger is going to be expressed on Jerusalem. And he's making this declaration and he's saying, there are within you, though, those that are humble and obedient to the Lord. And he says, cry out, maybe God will spare you. So that's, that's a, a mindset that he says, you know, even in that moment, he's saying, who knows what can take place, but this is where your heart ought to be. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. So again, Zephaniah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah, I shouldn't have done these two, two weeks in a row. It just isn't working for me. Zechariah, by the way, is written after the exile, so I did even put them out of order historically. Zephaniah is going... There is a value in humility of humbling yourself before the Lord. There is a value in seeking Him and just making yourself uh, uh, before Him and, and humbling yourself and saying, you know, whatever you want, God, whatever you desire, this is what our hearts, where our hearts are at. And I guess I look at that even for our day going, we live in a very proud day, we live in a proud people but there is a value to humility that's, that's important. Years ago when churches used to gather together and we had prayer, uh, part of the physical enactment even regularly was the bowing down. People would kneel at their chair and they would bow before the Lord. And, and I'm not looking to incorporate a, a body style, so to speak, 
But I'd recommend even in personal prayer at times, it's, it's appropriate just to say, God, I am physically going to show my humility before you, and I'm going to bow down and open myself up to you. It's, it's appropriate to just say, this is the posture that we're heading into when we pray, that there's an, an appropriateness of this. And so Zephaniah is saying, you know, trouble is right on the horizon, but those of you that are godly, he says, approach God in humility. Who knows what's going to take place? Okay, going on a bit wider, in the chapter 2, there are names that are addressed that most of us are completely unaware of, but it, it I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you get glimpses. Basically, he's taking the people groups that are around them, and he's listing Philistine cities and uh, Canaan, the Philistine region, and just saying, trouble's coming to you as well. And then he looks at the Moabites and Ammonites that have been uh, enemies for years and years, and he's saying, trouble's coming to you, too. And then he takes on the Assyrians that have been a thorn in their flesh for recent years and, and troublesome to them. And he's saying, you know, you, you uh, think you've got it made, but no, that's not so. Trouble's coming to you as well. And he says, you know, Nineveh, that city that you're so proud of and, and you're arrogant about because of its strength, he's just going, there's coming a day when it's, it's just going to be obliterated, never to be rebuilt. It's intriguing to me that even in this day, Nineveh is just a rubble. All of those years, how could he pick out one city and say, that one's not going to make it? How do we look at other cities that have been longer in existence? Except that God just makes a declaration, says, you had your day, it's done. So that said, he lists these nations and says that trouble's coming to them. But what I've presented in some of the other books, and I, I really want to, to put this home. Those nations did not necessarily pursue God. There was no recognition in their hearts that God rules us. There was no necessarily any recognition that said we need to be obedient to him. Did that have any effect on God saying, I still have authority over you? So whether or not even in this day, a nation is declaring itself as obedient to God or whether it recognizes or acknowledges him, does it have significant effect whether God says, oh, they don't embrace me anymore, I, I, I won't touch that. Did God withdraw his hand? It's my assumption that he still rules all the nations. Even if you read these passages and you say there's coming a day when all the nations are going to march on Israel, there's something that says they're all going to be saying, doesn't care what, it doesn't matter what God thinks. This is who we are. So there, you know, that said, there, there's a, an acknowledgement. It doesn't matter if all the nations of the world say it, we aren't listening. Does that truly affect what God's doing and going to orchestrate on the earth? And I would say no. He goes, this is the contrast to the pride. This shall be their lot and return for their pride. 
because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts, the Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the nations, the lands of the nations. Into chapter 3, he goes back to Judah and Jerusalem, and I want to cover most of this chapter. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So the city of God, (laughs) Jerusalem, not living it. And so God is not saying, well, I ordained you as my city. You know, I've labeled you this, people of God. So obviously I can't touch you. No, it doesn't work that way. Christian nation, Christian people, can't touch you. Um, Sorry, that's not the principles that we see within the Old Testament in particular. He says her officials, every facet of leadership is covered in this next section. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are even wolves that leave nothing till morning. Those that are supposed to be looking out for people are taking to themselves. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. So the very leaders that are supposed to be presenting one example, living one way, are doing just the opposite, he says. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So he says, here's the contrast. God never acts that way. Your leadership may be living as profane as possibly can, but he says God is an authority who does not profane himself. He says, I've cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so no one walks in them. They're desolate. Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. They're eager to make all their deeds corrupt. He says, I I brought destruction. It should have caused you to think. He says, therefore, wait for me. For the day of the Lord, I will rise up, seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So again, this is that big picture that he paints. But he's saying, I've given you warning. I've taken away things. You didn't listen So now it's a time of anger being expressed. For at that time, we'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, and all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So he's making this declaration. He says, my anger is going to be expressed. Tremendous desolation is coming. But what's the purpose? It's not just to say, I'm mad and I'm going to smash you. But he's saying, I am going to bring this desolation, what? That a people might be purified unto me. So the goal is still the same as it's always been, to to dwell with his people, to have a people for himself. And so he's saying, I use my anger to draw people toward me because of uh, the, the need for them to change. If he doesn't change, and there's a need for someone to change, who's it going to be? It's going to be drawing toward him, 
not staying away. It's not God changed to just become uh, like people, but it's rather God saying, I need you to change and become like me, to be purified. Pure speech. He says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The Cushites were mentioned earlier, and, and I just stop for a moment. That is modern-day Ethiopia. And he says, even a remnant from over in Ethiopia is going to be drawn back. Most of you probably don't remember this, but a number of years ago, when the Jewish people were heading back to Israel, there was a, a great conflag going on because there were people from Ethiopia wanting to immigrate, and there was a question of, Ethiopians? Are you kidding? Or, can they be Jewish? Well, <laughs> the scripture was declaring it hundreds of years ago, thousands of years, just saying even the, the Ethiopians are going to be coming back. Pretty incredible. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me, for I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So again, this thing of humility is very important in regard to the Lord, that we acknowledge He is the one that holds the keys to all of life. He is our authority figure. He speaks truth. It's up to us to respond to His truth. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. He says, they're going to be my flock, you know. But what stands out to me is that sometimes we associate humility with fear, Right? Sometimes we say, well, you know, I tried to act humble towards this person, and really it's just a fearful response. He's saying, if you humble yourself before me, you're not going to need to fear anyone else. You're not going to need to fear any person. And so I guess when we're sorting that out, what's it look like to live a humble life? Uh, if it involves fear for others, that's not a true humility. The only one that deserves full respect is God himself. And so one of the markers, so to speak, of a life that's truly humbled before the Lord is this life that doesn't truly have a fear for others. It's an important concept to grab a hold of. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and he shall, you shall never fear evil again. On that day it will be said of Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's an amazing picture. I was chewing on that this week because there, at times it's hard for me to picture God looking over my life with joy, just who I am. And yet he draws me to passages like this. And the thought of God singing over me is a little bit strange, I have to admit. 
It's a beautiful thought. But have you ever considered the idea of that God sings over you? That when you're, when you're making good choices and your heart's in tune with him, that he may be expressing joy, loud singing. It's not bashful, it's not shy, it's not like some of us during the worship time going, if anybody heard me, it just would be disgusting to them, so I, you know, I mouth it real well. That's, that's not this picture. It's like he doesn't care who hears him in his expression over us. That's an amazing thing. I think, you know, for, for those that wrestle with self-doubt and, you know, even like these issues of shame and guilt all the time and stuff like that, it would be very appropriate to look at a verse like this and say, I need to see a picture of you singing over me. You know, I, I'm trying to live for you and... and Regularly, I'm just feeling like unworthy. Help me to see that you have cleaned the slate to the degree that you would sing over me. Kind of freak you out in your prayer time, wouldn't it? But why shouldn't we have a picture of him happy? You know? I've had a picture of that at times. I want to, I don't, I'm not saying I've seen God, but I, I feel like he's given me a picture of interaction with him. And there was a season where I'm going, I'm not sure if this is God, simply because it was too good. You know, it was, it was an enjoyable setting. It was like having fun together. And you're going, uh, you know, I'm used to trying to obey but the thought of just hanging out, you know, that, that wasn't one that I was used to. And yet, in a, in a verse like this, if that's our future, why shouldn't there be glimpses of that today? You know, we, we talk about times of worship where there's a sense of awe and the sense of the presence of God or, or times when things just awaken for us we say, that's a glimpse of what's coming. But when we read in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit being a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, and we, we sense His presence in our lives and around us, and we say, that's just a hint of the future, well, then surely He will also give us pictures of what this future looks like, even including things like loud singing. And if you haven't had a picture of his joy, maybe it's time to say, I'd like to see that as well. Don't freak me out too much, but, you know, a hint would be great. <laughs> I think it's there for us. The final portion is, I'll gather those of you who mourn for the festival so you'll no longer suffer reproach. 
Behold, at that time I'll deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, gather the outcast, and I'll change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At time I'll bring you, and at the time I'll gather you together, for I'll make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, and I'll restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So in this little book, he's saying in the immediate, there's a desolation coming that uh, no one wishes for. Disaster of, of a, an untold magnitude. And then later on, he's saying worldwide, this kind of thing is going to happen as well. But his declaration is that the final picture is an incredibly wonderful time where a purified people is with them, singing over them, restoring the lame and the oppressed, the lame, restoring fortune in a way that we didn't never dream possible. Lord, we look forward to those days. Help us to anticipate the fullness of what you have for us. Cause our hearts to be faithful in this day, to recognize that you hold the keys to all of life. Your truth never fails. We yield to you this day. Amen. I wish I could tell you that I know what's going to happen in our nation. You know, that, I think all of us um, look ahead and we're going, we're not sure where this thing's going. We would like revival. We would like That doesn't change what we're called to in this hour. We must keep speaking truth. We must keep trusting in a faithful God. We must acknowledge that He is in control of all things in a good way. And when it's all said and done, there is an opportunity of being united with Him in a way that exceeds anything we've seen. And rejoice in that. I'd like to pray for God's blessing on you. What remains is open-ended. If you like prayer, it's easiest if you come forward. But uh, if not, just find someone that you trust and uh, spend some time together. May your blessing rest on these, you people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy that walking in humility before you drives away other fears. I pray that as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural, I pray. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen. Amen. God bless you.